Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 20, verses 1 through 2. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, this is on page 272. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichari, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichari. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I have some quotes to share with you from our own children. We had them fill out some uh, sheets, and so some of these are pretty cool. My mom always helps me. My mom cooks yummy soup, noodles, French toast, chicken, veggies, cookies. Favorite saying is, I love you. Favorite thing to do, play with me puzzles and play with trains, and I initially thought this said listen to K-pop, but it says listen to K-love, so a much more spiritual child. Favorite store, Costco? Costco. (laughs) Farmer Joe's, Trader Joe's? Favorite color, pink, red, green, teal. Teal. I love when my mom, I feel special when my mom gives me a kiss, feeds me food. This one's a manipulative kid. Gives me screen time. I want to know who that one is. It's probably mine. Talks with me, helps me when I'm sick or sad, gives me hugs. Favorite thing to do together, play chess. That's a smart one. Play soccer, garden, shopping. My mom is really good at driving. (laughs) Using forks. I love my mom because she is so pretty, because I love her, she loves me, she's awesome. She always lets me stay with her. She is very kind. She is kind, creative, and helpful. She's the most awesome mom. This is one where we've recruited some adults into uh, their mothers. She loves to, this is for everyone to keep in mind today. She loves to eat out. She loves to drink the residual cough syrup in the dosing cup after administering (laughs) to her children. That mom needs it, I guess. (laughs) She cooks the yummiest curry. Her favorite place to go is wherever her grandkids are. My mom really can't sit still. My mom really can't tell a joke. My mom really loves Korean dramas. She doesn't like the cold. I love her more than all the chocolate in the world. I also want to say my mother-in-law was an amazing gift of love and acceptance. One memory was when I went to her home to give her a ride and she actually jumped for joy because I was there. I still smile remembering her joy that blessed me. Happy Mother's Day. And today we have such appropriate scripture to go along with that for 2 Samuel 20. (laughs) Actually, it's about a guy named Sheba which I don't know how we came up with naming cats Sheba, but that's what it is. Sheba's a Benjaminite, which means he was part of King Saul's tribe. And so you notice that Sheba is referred to the son of Bikri eight times here in in the chapter, and there are Bible scholars who think there's a link between Bikorath, which is Saul's ancestry in 1 Samuel chapter 9, 
and Bikri, which makes Sheba uh, a relative of King Saul. So that's just some background information, but let me uh, pause there and let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for mothers. It's no surprise that you put in the very Ten Commandments to honor our mothers as well as fathers, but today we recognize mothers. And we ask for your blessing upon them. We ask for your blessing upon those who are mothering, that even if it's not their children, they've taken on this role to mother these kids who are in their charge or who they just feel love and care for. Uh, We ask for patience, Lord. We ask for wisdom. We ask that you would give such a blessing to all those with this spirit, this heart, to love those that need that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 20, verse 1, Sheba is described as a worthless man, uh, which in Hebrew, this literal translation is a, a man of Belial. And this is interpreted in English as worthless, but Belial can actually be translated as worthless, wicked, evil, ungodly. So you get a better idea of who this Sheba character was and, and why you, you might be wondering, why is Sheba described in this way? Well, Sheba has rejected God's chosen. Not only is he rejecting David, he, he's calling for a rebellion for these northern tribes to rebel against God's anointed, which is back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 where Samuel is anointing David. And so Sheba is telling these northern tribes to break the covenant with God. That is not the recognized king. We we're going to break this covenant with God. So there's actually nothing new going on here. This is a story that keeps repeating itself. Because we just went through this rebellion with Absalom since chapter 15. But here's the thing. That spirit of rebellion is the same thing that we currently in this present day go through with God constantly. Over and over and over again, the history of humanity since its beginning is this very thing. Rebellion over, over, over. And so the question for us to ponder is, how do we really view the authority of Scripture, of the Bible? Will we rebel against the Word of God and as evidenced by human history, all do? Everyone does. That there are many Shebas in our world today. That there are many Shebas in the church today. Many who determine for themselves what is good and what is evil over and over and over again. And rather than looking to scriptures to define what is good and evil, many who are rebelling against the king defining for themselves what is good and what is evil. And it takes us back to Genesis 3 all over again. Myra's read for us verses 1 through 2, so I'm going to start at verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Why is verse 3 so important that it's mentioned as the first thing David does when he re-enters Jerusalem? Why does David address this? Well, we need to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12. We need to go back to 2 Samuel 15, verse 16, and to chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. So let me read these verses to you, starting in chapter 
12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Chapter 15, verse 16. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Now to chapter 16, verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. That's the background to why David, first thing he does when he enters Jerusalem, he addresses this issue. So David makes these arrangements for these women who have experienced this misery at no fault of their own. And actually it is David that caused all this misery. And so he provides for them shelter and food and protection, but they live as widows in confinement, in loneliness, in isolation, very sad. He puts them away, and essentially they are in, under house arrest for the rest of their lives. They're not allowed to go out in public. There's no personal freedom for them to leave. They are held captive at no fault of their own. This is all David's fault. Now again, this is nothing new. It's something that we've seen before, 2 Samuel chapter 13, when Amnon violated Tamar, right? No fault of her own. It's his sin. He's the sinful one. It's no fault of Tamar's. And then he hates her, and he throws her out like garbage, as the scriptures tell us, and she becomes desolate, isolated, lonely for the rest of her life. And Amnon is the one who sinned, and Tamar is the one who suffers. See, so not only is this spirit of rebellion the same thing that we go through over and over and over again today with God, so is this consequence of sin that others have to pay when it's no fault of their own. How unjust is that? That there are so many people who are affected by others' sins. It's not their fault. They did not do anything. And so where is the justice? And so in this chapter, it shows us that the world is full of Shebas, that the world is full of Tamars. And so we have to look up. We have to look for where is the hope. And so it's pointing us to a Messiah back in Samuel. It's pointing us today to Jesus, our Savior, who said in Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who is prophesied about in Isaiah, in chapter 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Our world is full of broken people. And those who sin and those who are sinned against, it's full of these people. 
Sheba's revolt is dealt with in verse 4, starting in verse 4. It reads this. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified cities and escape from us. So here's what's happened so far. David wants to squash Sheba's rebellion, and he orders Amasa, the, the new military commander he's appointed, to get this military ready in three days. Well, Amasa doesn't get his job done in time. He doesn't do what David has ordered him to do. So David turns to Abishai in verse 6 because David knows that, you know, if this aggressive cancer isn't dealt with quickly, he is going to spread and cause havoc throughout the entire kingdom. We have to deal with Sheba now. So verse 7, And there went out with him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh, and he went forward, and it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So Amasa is behind all of this military. He's late. So first of all, he he can't assemble the military. Second of all, he is late to meet up in Gibeon, which is just six miles northwest of Jerusalem. And we're given this detail about a sword falling out of Joab's sheath when he goes and he greets Amasa. and, and, And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, which is nothing unusual happening here. This is a common way to greet a friend is, is to, to grab his beard as part of a greeting of, among friends and, hey, what's up? You know, like give him a little friendly peck on the cheek. Like, I don't have to worry about that. So Amasa's not expecting anything. This is a normal thing. Like, hey, bro, you know, like, you know, it's a normal thing, normal greeting. And it's with the right hand, which is an important detail because the right hand is your sword hand where you kind of break out your sword. And so he's not expecting anything uh, out of this. Verse 10, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Joab's there. He he grabs Amasa's beard with his right hand. He's like, oh, and then his left hand is like, it fell out of the sheet. He grabs the sword, and he just cuts him open. Joab kills Amasa. Amasa, who didn't do his job to assemble the military quickly in verses 4 through 6, who was this hindrance to the mission in 8 through 10, he's late. And who is now this obstacle for everyone to see in verses 11 through 13, because it's like when people, this is the most irritating thing, isn't it? When people on the other side of the freeway are stopping because there's traffic, like they, they cause traffic on the other side and the accident's not even on their side. Why? Because they're looking. Right? They're just driving like, oh, look at that accident. Nothing's wrong on this side, though, but I'm going to go five miles an hour. And I'm just going to pause and go like, and then it goes back several miles. So irritating. This is what's happening here. Dude, he's dead. Check him out. There's this whole military entourage here, and there's these guys are just pausing, looking at Amasa's dead body. So Joab's not happy. 
Joab's like, dude, he can't gather a military. He was running late, and now he's stopping this whole military thing from moving forward. So here, verse 11, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. Then he was taken out of the highway. All the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. So Joab's guys see Amasa wallowing in his blood, causing everyone to just stop. And so they like, dude, get him out of here. This is a distraction. We got to go. So they take him off the highway, cover him in the field, and the military traffic can start flowing again. And so Joab, you don't want to mess with Joab. He's, um, he has a history of violence. Take a look at Joab in chapter 3, verse 27. He's the one that killed Abner. And you go into chapter 18, and he's the one that killed Absalom. And you go into chapter 20, and he's the one that killed Amasa. And through all of it, he gets away with it. He got away with killing the king's son after the king said, deal gently with him. David doesn't do anything about it. And Joab, he's just taking his chances that he's, nothing's going to happen to him because he figures, you know what? I'm a man of action. I'm just going to get the mission done, and whatever happens, happens. I'm, I'm just going to do my job, and whoever's in my way, I kill him. That's just how he is. And he's like, I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. I'm just going to do my job. And so far, it's worked for him, even in killing David's son. And so Joab is this ruthless killer, but at the same time, he is helping David save his kingdom because he is extremely loyal to David. But here's the thing. David has no control over him. Joab is not an enemy like Abner was. He's not someone who's seeking David's throne like Absalom was. He's not leading a rebellion like someone like Sheba is. He is a faithful servant of David who isn't trying to be a king, but he's sure acting like one. Loyal to David, but not submissive to David. And so again, nothing new under the sun when it comes to rebellious people. There are Shebas in this world who rebel directly against the kingdom. There are Tamars who are violated against and they suffer from the sins of others in this world. And there are these Joabs who they look like faithful and loyal servants of the kingdom, but they're not submissive to the king. That they hurt people, even though they represent the king, that they cause pain and they inflict damage in the name of the kingdom, but they cause more harm than good. This reminds you at all of people in the church that we are supposed to be 
loyal and faithful servants of God, but in actuality, we're actually hurting people because we're just too harsh. We're causing pain. We're causing suffering. And we think that we're doing God's will, but we're not actually submissive to God in loving people. Jesus spoke about people like this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so there are people just like Joab today who they acknowledge who the rightful king is. They acknowledge that it is Jesus, but they disregard his will, that they are not submissive to God, which is not a good thing at all, that there is no place in the kingdom for people like this. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 15. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city and it took against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Now Abel Beth Maacah is in the far north of Israel. It is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so this geography is important for us to keep in mind because it's telling us how little support Sheba has gathered since leaving Jerusalem and all the way up for this 25 miles. He's trying to rally the northern tribes of Israel. Come on, let's, let's secede from David. He's not the rightful king. And the only ones that are in support of him are his own people, the Bichthrites. They're fortifying themselves in this city called Beth Maaka while Job is beginning this siege operation against that city. And this is the very thing that David was worried about. You know, he's going to go around. He's going to fortify himself in these, these cities. So we got to stop him now. So now he's fortified himself in this city. And then verse 16 happens. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the manner. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy that is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Wise woman. Saved an entire city. She goes out, she reasons with Joab, comes up with this compromise, saves all these people in the city. Take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. Could Solomon be writing about what happened here in Beth Maacah? And just as Ecclesiastes tells us about this wisdom, it repeatedly tells us there's nothing new under the sun. 
that there are Shebas in this world with us today, that there are Tamars in this world with us today, there are Joabs in this world with us today, there are people like this wise woman who are with us today. And there are so many examples of this wisdom in 2 Samuel. David thinks he's come up with a really wise plan to cover up his affair with Bathsheba in chapter 11, doesn't he? Send Uriah to the front, kill him off. I'm clear. Finally, thank you. And then he doesn't know that Nathan has this wisdom coming up in the story right after in chapter 12 about a ewe lamb to point out David's sin. And then we have Jonadab coming up with this wise plan for Amnon to violate Tamar at the beginning of chapter 13. Then we have Absalom's wise plan to murder Amnon for what he did to his sister Tamar in the latter part of chapter 13. Then Absalom setting Joab's field on fire because he was exiled and, and David agreed to bring him back in, but he can't speak to the king. And so what does Absalom do? He thinks, you know, I'm going to burn Joab's field and make him talk to me. So he comes over and he says, hey, get me to the king. I want to talk to the king. That happens in chapter 14. Then Absalom fooling all of Israel, starting in Hebron, into following him in chapter 15. David's wisdom in recruiting Zadok, Abiathar, and Hushai to be spies for him during Absalom's coup in the latter part of 15. And then Ziba's wisdom in slandering Mephibosheth and helping David in chapter 16 as he's fleeing from Absalom in Jerusalem. And then Ahithophel's wisdom in giving counsel to Absalom in chapter 16 and 17 that we read earlier about setting up and sleeping with your dad's concubines. And then Hushai's wisdom to sabotage Ahithophel and Absalom plans. There's all this wisdom happening throughout 2 Samuel. There's so much wisdom. Some of it used for good. Some of it used for evil. And the woman in Beth Maaka that wisdom was used for a legitimate good. She saved an entire city. She saved all of those people. She saved so many lives. But wisdom can be used for good or evil. Wisdom is exercised in how to be successful. And that can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Wisdom can be a deadly thing when there is no holiness in it. And in the case of this wise woman, it was a good thing, but it isn't always good. We see this in 2 Samuel, and we see this in our world all the time. People exercising wisdom, how to be successful in whatever they want to accomplish, without holiness, is so deadly. Verse 23, now Joab was in command of all the enemy of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Serethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. And so these are all positions in David's cabinet. Joab is in charge of the army. Yikes. Right, It can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing because he is fiercely loyal to David, but the thing is that he's totally out of control and if you're in his way, he'll kill you. And this is a list of David's cabinet. It's telling us that David's kingdom is still intact. It is in a fragile state because of a sinful king and a sinful general and 
rebellions coming from Absalom and Sheba, but it is still standing despite all of these internal problems as well as these external problems. This is the church. This is our church. Fragile. Standing. But like in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We have our Shebas. We have our Tamars. We have our Joabs. We have wise women. And we have our own idea of our own kingdoms and how they are to operate. And maybe you find yourself in one of these scenarios or these places. But the thing to ultimately keep in mind is that the kingdom of God reigns and it is forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that your spirit is working in our church, that you would point out to us whenever we're trying to build our own kingdom or even when we're trying to build your kingdom, but perhaps we're not going about it in a right way, such as Joab, that we're loyal, that we're faithful, that we're serving, but we're not loving, or that we're just trying to build our own kingdoms within the kingdom. May we be completely submissive to you. May we exercise wisdom that is for good. May we keep our eye out for the Tamars of this world who have been sinned against at no fault of their own, and may we care for them, Lord. May we be on the lookout for those Shebas and stop those sorts of rebellions and rejection of your word. May we recognize your authority. We ask God that you would sift that spirit out of us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have communion elements, we'll take communion together. Just hold up your hand and we'll, we'll get those communion elements to you. First, the wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ. The very reason why Jesus came and then even in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel pointing out that so much brokenness with the Shebas of this world and the Tamars of this world and the Joabs and the wise women and so many things going on with the brokenness, even within our own church. We take this in celebration and remembrance of Jesus and what he provides to us. And the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this sacrament, this consistent reminder of our need for you, our consistent reminder to continue looking up to continue looking at you as even in our limited wisdom and how we define good and evil 
when we are the ones taking advantage of it, no fault of our own in times of rebellion, that we ultimately need you and that your kingdom is forever. Thank you, Lord, for being a holy God in Jesus' name. Amen.